Okay, John 3, if you have your Bibles. John 3, we're going to be verses 16 through 21. Um, before, we, before we read through this together, um, let me give you some context to what we're going to be reading. The, today's message out of, the, out of John 3 is going to be kind of a part two to the message that we gave last week. Okay, um, last week we were introduced to a guy named Nicodemus. And in the, in, in the Gospels, we're told that a few things about Nicodemus. We're told he's got a lot of wealth, right? He's got a lot of money. We're told he's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of prestige. He's got a position. He's, you know, he's got a lot of a strong political position. He's one of the rulers. And we're told that he has greater moral conviction and discipline than I think any of us have the ability to imagine. Um, yet, we're told that one night, Nicodemus goes to see Jesus, and he sits at Jesus' feet, and he says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher from God, uh, because nobody could do what you're doing unless God is with him. So despite the fact that Nicodemus had so much, that he knew so much, that he had achieved so much, he still knew that there's something was not right. He was still missing something So Nicodemus goes to Jesus, and I believe he's saying, Jesus, teach me. What more do I need to know that I need to obey so that finally, finally I can feel accepted by God? Finally, I can be made right. And Jesus essentially says to him, we talked about this last week, Jesus essentially says, you don't need more teaching, you need to be born again. You don't need more teaching, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He says, Nicodemus, if you come to me as a teacher who is going to teach you what you need to know to save yourself, rather than as a savior who has come to do what you can never do, you will never, ever, ever enter the kingdom of God. Um, Nicodemus essentially says, born again, new birth, like what in the world are you talking about? How can that be? How can a grown man go to his mother, re-enter into her womb to come right back out? It's a terrible picture, right? It's disgusting. You have to imagine what's going through Nicodemus' mind. This is going to be gross, okay? Jesus says, Nicodemus, this is what I mean. You have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. There's two births. There's a physical birth, but you also need a spiritual birth. You are not saved because of your physical... You are not saved because you're a Jew, Nicodemus. You're not saved because of your genetics. You're, you need a second birth, a spiritual rebirth, When he says you have to be born of the water and the spirit, I believe that Jesus is referring back to Ezekiel chapter 36 where God makes a promise through Ezekiel where where God says, one day I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. And this clean water is going to cleanse you from all of your sin and all of your uncleanness and all of your idolatry. And then, okay, it doesn't stop there, right? There's forgiveness of sin. There's a cleansing from the water. But then I'm doing that, that I might place my spirit in you and make you alive. Not just physically alive, spiritually alive. Born of the water and of the spirit. So again, Nicodemus, I love it. He says, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you, how this can be. And then Jesus says, I'll tell you how it's possible. He says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so too I, the son of man, will be lifted up. And again, for us, we're like, What? But Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about. Nicodemus had that story memorized. He's a Pharisee. He had that story memorized. He knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. In Numbers chapter 21, there is a kind of an obscure, very bizarre story of the Israelites, the nation of Israel, having been delivered out of Egypt, on their way to the promised land, end up rebelling, rejecting God, Okay, rebelling against their uh, rescuer, against their creator, against their king, saying, we would rather go back to Egypt, back to slavery, than to trust and obey you. Okay, and as a result, uh, as a result of their treason, 
as judgment for their treason against God, God allows snakes to come into their camp and begin biting them. These venomous, poisonous, deadly snakes come in and they start biting them and the nation of Israel falls to the ground, starts to writhe, starts to convulse in pain and it looks as if the nation is going to be wiped out. Um, God looks down upon them, these children of Israel, he looks down upon them, he has mercy on them and he tells their leader Moses and he says, go make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it high up into the air and anybody who looks at that snake will be healed. Okay? The question we asked last week was, why in the world would God ask Moses to make a snake and to put it on a pole? Um, why, out of anything he could have asked him to make, why was it a snake? Okay, he could have had, you know, cherubim. He could have had, you know, the tablets. He could have been, why, why did he say put a snake on a pole and once they look at the snake, they'll be healed? Why would the very thing that is destroying them, when it's lifted up and looked upon, now bring them healing? And Jesus gives us the answer. He says, because that story is about me. That story is about me. I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up and all who look upon me will be healed. When we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we see our sin, the very thing that was destroying us, laid upon Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So we now find healing because Jesus took that sin upon himself and he paid the debt for our sins and offers forgiveness and reconciliation to all who would receive it. That's what he's saying. We can be born of the water and the Spirit through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, if you were gone last week, you don't have to go back and listen to the podcast. That was it. That's what we talked about, okay? Um, but the conversation isn't over yet. We got, we got part one. We got the first half. Jesus is continuing to share this gospel message with Nicodemus. Now, look, if you follow along in your Bible, most of you are going to find little headers at certain, you know, every few paragraphs, you're going to find little headers describing what's to come in, 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 the, uh, in, the, gospel, in the scriptures. So for me, in, in my Bible, right before verse 16, so between 15 and 16, you're going to see a little header that says, for God so loved the world. Anybody else have that? Okay, little header right there. Now, oftentimes when you get to one of those little headers, or when you get to the end of a chapter, you're going to automatically see a break in what's happening, and you're going to think, okay, now, now we're beginning a new conversation, or now we begin a new event, or now we begin a, a, you know, a new day, but don't always make that assumption. Okay, those, those little headers in there, uh, those little chapter numbers, aren't necessarily breaking up events and conversations. It was only about six or 700 years ago that somebody got the bright idea to put in chapters and verses into our Bible. Yeah, just on this last six, 600 or 700 years ago that they did that, and even more recently did they put in the, he- the little headers. Okay? So sometimes that can be a little confusing. The original manuscripts, though, didn't include that. It wasn't like John was sitting there 2,000 years ago thinking, oh, I wonder what I should I write for John 3.16. What, what, what's verse 16 going to say? It, well, that wasn't there. Somebody else put that in there to, to act as a reference point so when you study together, everybody can turn to the same spot. Okay? Um, so with that understanding, I want you to see that what we're, what we're going to read is, is still Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. He's still talking to him. He's just made all those comments about Moses and the snake and being lifted up and all that, and this is how he continues. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, 
The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay. There are about a dozen different directions that we could head today, but what we're going to do is we're going to keep it incredibly simple today. Okay, we're going to keep it very simple, and we're going to pull out what I believe are the, the three uh, major themes that we find in these six verses. Three major themes. Um, and then time permitting, we'll, I'll give you a couple uh, little bonus practical takeaways. So first we're going to look at, again, the three major themes. Condemnation, salvation, motivation. Okay, those are the three things you're going to find in here. Condemnation, salvation, motivation. Uh, it's going to get a little murky at first. Bear with me. Right smack dab in the middle of this conversation with Nicodemus, we're going to find the most famous, most often memorized, probably the most fruitful verse in the entire Bible. It's John 3.16. Okay? Um, it's, not, it's not difficult to understand why this verse is so loved and so well known. It's, it's, it's the gospel in a nutshell. But to best understand John 3.16, you have to understand it in context. John 3:16 and 17 are the, probably the most clear statements about the extravagant love and mercy of God. But please note, well, hear me, look. Please note that immediately after 16 and 17, in, in Jesus' very next breath, he is going to make some sweeping statements about, about the condemnation and the judgment of God, about the wrath of God. You have to do something about that. We love John 3.16. We love John 3.17. But guess what? There's also John 3.18. Verse 17 says, I didn't come to condemn you. Like, awesome. This is great. Close the Bible. That's it. Let's just stop there. Okay? But you can't do that. Because if you keep reading what Jesus actually says in context, he says, I didn't come to condemn you because you're condemned already. That's what he said. Because you're condemned already. A dozens of times and dozens of different ways, the scriptures are going to tell us over and over, there is none righteous, no, not even one. We are all sinners. We are all perishing. We all stand condemned. We're guilty of breaking God's law. Therefore, we stand under the wrath of God. So the question that we need to ask today is how can one of the greatest declarations of the love and the mercy of God sit right next to one of the clearest statements of God's wrath? How do you make sense of those two together? Well, first, we have to acknowledge what the wrath and the judgment of God really is. God's wrath, please hear me. Some of us don't, still don't get this yet. God's wrath is not crankiness. God doesn't have a bad temper. God doesn't lose control like you and I do and explode on people. Okay? He doesn't have a temper issue like I do and like you do. When we talk about God's condemnation, his wrath, what we are simply saying, hear me, is that he is a God of standards and that he upholds those standards. Um, in our modern world, we really don't like this idea. We probably like this about as little as we like the idea of a God of, of bad temper, right? Um, in our modern world, suggesting that there are absolute true moral standards that transcend time, that transcend culture, that transcend, that are above your personal preference and my personal preference that we are held accountable to, that's a very unpopular thing to say today, isn't it? But I want you to see what our society does. All the time, you're going to hear people on the news 
and in speeches and so on. I don't care what side of the aisle you're sitting on. All the time, you're going to hear people crying out to America for it to return to its values. Let's get values back in our school. Let's, get, you know, let's promote ethics in the workplace. But as soon as somebody says that, somebody else is going to say, well, whose values? Which ethics do we promote in the workplace? On one hand, we hear people crying out that it is terribly narrow-minded, it's dogmatic to, to believe in a right and a wrong that transcends culture and your personal preference and my personal preference. But in the very next breath, these people who are saying, that's narrow-minded for you to believe that, they're going to say, but hey, be generous, be honest, don't steal, don't murder, life is sacred. One, there's a philosopher who said that, that that's the grand says who. That's what he called it, the grand says who. Who says who says life is sacred? You want to you remove any, any sense of absolute moral standards? Who says that I should be moral? Who says that I should you know, treat life as, as, as if it's sacred? We reject moral absolutes and the giver of those moral abs- absolutes, and then we expect people to act absolutely moral. You see the irony? That's what we do. It says who? Who says I should be moral? C.S. Lewis said, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then bid them to be fruitful. Ravi Zacharias, um, one of my favorite apologists, he, he was... Uh, he was interviewed over the phone several years ago, right in the middle of the economic crisis. And he was, he was being interviewed. And I can't remember who the journalist was. But um, when he got on the phone with this journalist, Ravi said, you know, before we start, can I ask you a question? And the journalist was kind of taken aback. And he said, okay. Um, and Ravi said, you know, for years now, decades now, we have been teaching our young men and women in their graduate schools, in their Ivy League schools, that morality is all relative. Morality is relative personal preference. It's personal experience. It's all relative. And then we graduate them. And then they go on to practice what we have taught them in Wall Street. And when they practice what they have learned in our schools on Wall Street, then we put them behind bars. Of course, there was silence on the other end of the phone. What do you do with that? Modern Americans don't like the idea of absolute moral standards, and so they have rejected the source of those moral standards, but then they get upset when people don't operate within moral standards. What I'm trying to say is that we know in our heart of hearts, if you're really honest, we know in our heart of hearts that there is a moral law, there is a moral standard that transcends time, that transcends culture, that transcends personal preference that we are held accountable to. That's why we get so upset when people don't operate within those moral standards. But the only way that there can be a moral law, a moral standard, is if there is a moral law giver. Something that transcends you and I. When we talk about condemnation or judgment, we're not talking about God being a loose cannon that you don't want to you know, mess with on a bad day. Okay? I'm simply saying that he is a God of standards and he upholds those standards. So the question is, what happens when we break those standards? What does the Bible say? Well, first, let me, let me back up. Terms like breaking God's law, that's kind of a misleading term. Um, that would be, you, you, and I, you and I don't break God's law. We can't break God's law. That would be like if, if you were to walk out of this building today, you were to go climb up on that roof, you were to, to put on a cape, you know, slip on some red underwear over your pants, put up a little big S on your chest, and then jump off of that building 
hoping to prove, uh, you know, hoping to break, rather, break the law of gravity. If you were to do that, um, what, in fact, would you end up breaking? What, in fact, would you know? You would break yourself all the while proving the law of gravity. What we do as we disregard God's law is we break ourselves all the while proving that God's law is true and right. What we do as we disregard God's law is we break ourselves all the while proving that God's law is true and it's right. Jesus says this is like walking in darkness. This is what he says in verses 19 through 21. It's like walking in spiritual darkness. And I've thought a lot this week about why Jesus would choose to use that metaphor. He uses darkness and light a lot, doesn't he? Um, My mind went back to a passage in um, Keller's book uh, called Jesus the King. I'd like to read this for you. It's a little long, but would you please stay with me? I've got it up here on the screen because I want you to catch this. This is what he said. These days, most of us don't know what real physical darkness is. Even when we are out in the country at night, there are always towns nearby with plenty of electric lights. If you are in utter darkness, though, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And to stay in utter darkness for an extended time can have a radically disorienting effect on you. In 1914, British explorer Ernest Shackleton and his crew took a ship to Antarctica. Their plan was to land, walk across Antarctica, cross over the South Pole, and continue all the way across. The plan had to be abandoned, though, because their ship, the Endurance, got caught in polar ice and was crushed. Over the following months, Shackleton's crew fought just to survive and to get home. One of Shackleton's biographers said, says that of all the difficulties they faced, including starvation and frigid temperatures, the worst thing was the darkness. Near the South Pole, the sun goes down in mid-May and does not come back up until late July. There is no daytime, no sunlight for two months. In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day, week after week. Few unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. In such deep darkness, you cannot see... Listen, listen to this. In such deep darkness, you can't see forward, so you don't know where you're going. You have no direction. You can't even see yourself. You don't know what you look like. You may as well have no identity, identity. And you can't tell whether there is anyone around you, friend or foe. You are isolated. Physical darkness brings disorientation, but according to the Bible, so does spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness comes when we turn away from God as our true light and make something else the center of our life. The Bible sometimes compares God to the sun. Listen, the sun is a source of visual truth because by it we see everything. And the sun is a source of biological life because without it, nothing could live. And God, the Bible says, is the source of all truth and all life. If you orbit around God, then your life has truth and vitality. You are in the light. But if you turn away from God and orbit around anything else, your career, your relationships, your family, as the source of your warmth and your hope, the result is spiritual darkness. So you see what he's saying? Those who are in utter physical darkness lose their direction, forget what they truly look like, and end up isolated. And it's the same thing with spiritual darkness. Separation from God results in a, by the way, that's what, we talk about breaking God's standards. That's what the, the wages of sin is death. It means separation from God. Separation from God results in a disorientation that will lead to disintegration and eventually destruction. Again, Jesus says, I have not come to condemn you. 
I'm not, I'm not here to bring a message of condemnation. Why? Because you're already condemned. That happened in Genesis. That happened in Genesis when man and woman were removed from God's presence because of their sin, because of breaking God's moral law. That condemnation is already taking place. We're already experiencing it. That means, listen, this is what kind of blew my mind this week, is I'm as just a great reminder. To, we do not live in a neutral world. I think sometimes we, we operate like that. We think that way. We don't live in a neutral world. Um, Jesus essentially says uh, there are only two states of men and women in this world, those who are condemned and those who, uh, by God's grace, have said yes to him and find, found forgiveness. You, you sit on one of those planes. We, I think sometimes we think as if like we're just in this neutral, we'll just kind of see what happens from here. Jesus says, if Jesus is telling the truth, he says you're condemned, you're forgiven. That means, listen, that for those who have yet to receive Jesus for who he is and what he has done, won't face condemnation 60 years from now. It says that they're condemned already. They're not standing neutral. They're already living in spiritual darkness, experiencing the beginnings of disorientation and the beginning of disintegration. And if they do not hear and respond to the call of Jesus Christ, we're told that this disorientation and disintegration will continue on into eternity. Everyone's life is on a trajectory that will continue on into eternity. Some, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, are being sanctified, being brought closer to the Lord, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And are, are, their trajectory is this, and some are on a very different trajectory. Others who refuse grace continue on into eternity, into darkness. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a harsh, these are harsh verses, aren't they? But I want you to see this is what he says. We've got to do something with that. You either dismiss him as a crackpot or you take him seriously and you fall at his feet and you beg for his forgiveness. I want you to see, friends, what this, what this means to our perspective of evangelism, by the way. How does this affect how we, how we see evangelism? I believe that this means that, that, that the Holy Spirit through us is grabbing people and yanking them from the precipice of hell. See the urgency. See what a weighty and a critical responsibility that we have in, 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 in sharing the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not, just, we're not just helping say, hey, in 60 years you could experience hell. We're saying that people, you guys are beginning to experience the disorientation and dis- disintegration now. He said you're condemned already. Hard, hard words. But now we move on to our second thing because a theme, because as clear and as deep as Jesus' statements were about condemnation, he is just as clear that condemnation need not be the final word. Verse 16, we know and love it. Say, let's say it together because this, we're, this is, there's some tension in this room right now. <laughs> let's say it together. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal Life. God so loved the world. He says, I've come into a condemned world, but I come that you might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Gave him to do what? Why did he send Jesus here? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Jesus Christ came to reveal the heart and the character of the Father. He came to show us how to live. He came to show us what's important. He came to show us how to love one another and to love our enemies and to do it all with the humility and for the glory of God. But Jesus also came And I would argue that he primarily came that he might die on the cross as a substitution, taking that condemnation. He came that he might put death to death. 
John Stott says it like this. He says, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And that's the throne. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the cross. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. The the cross of Jesus Christ means that for those who place their trust in him, the wrath of God, that condemnation that we've been talking about, has been removed from our shoulders and placed onto Jesus. Now Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now no condemnation. There's no more left. He took it. He didn't just take the physical suffering that sin brings. He took the spiritual suffering, the spiritual condemnation. That's why, you know, he was separated from God the Father. That's why on the cross, he, he, he cries out that the Father had forsaken him. He took our condemnation, and he did it for you. And if your faith is in Jesus, your record is clean. It's spotless. Romans 5 says that we now have peace with God. Now, that's, I'm not, I didn't say peace of God. Peace of God is great. Peace from God is great, right? Um, you know, that's a, it's a great feeling. It's wonderful to have the peace of God, but you can only have the peace of God if you have peace with God. That's what Romans 5 says. It says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That means that God is no longer opposed to us because of our crimes. There is no hostility towards us from God. He is not against us. He is for us. He's not our enemy. He's our ally. He's our protector. He's our king. He's our friend. He's our father. He's our husband. Do you believe that? Let me read to you this old, let me read to you this old sermon illustration. I don't know its origin, but it, it illustrates it well. There's an old story about a young man who had rebelliously defied his father and left home. He continued, however, to keep in touch with his mother and wanted very badly to come home for Christmas, but he was afraid that his father would not let him. His mother wrote to him and urged him to come home, but he did not feel he could until he knew that he knew that he knew that his father had forgiven him. Finally, there's no more time for any more letters because Christmas was at hand. And his mother had written and said that she would talk with the father, and if he had forgiven him, if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white cloth onto the tree which grew right alongside the railroad tracks near their home which he could see before the train reached the station. If there were no white cloth, it would be better if he went on. So the young man started home. And as the train drew near his home, he was so nervous, he said to his friend who was traveling with him, I cannot bear to look. Sit in my place and look out the window. I'll tell you what the tree looks like, and you tell me whether there is a white cloth on it or not. So his friend changed places with him and looked out the window. After a little while, the friend said, Oh man, I see the tree. So the son asked, is there a white cloth tied to it? For a moment, the friend didn't say anything. And then he turned and in a quiet voice said, there is a white cloth tied to every limb of that tree. In a sense, Jesus Christ is the white cloth that our Heavenly Father has tied to the tree, to the cross of Calvary, telling us it's safe for us to come home to the Father. All has been forgiven. All has been made right. Romans, uh, I think it's 6, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, separation from God, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we ask one last question. Why? Why? We were enemies of God. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are at enmity with God. We are hostile towards Him. We have taken up arms against God. We have rebelled, revolted against him. Why, oh why, oh why 
would he do that? Uh, and, and we don't have to speculate. We have our answer. Jesus tells us, verse 16, for God so loved the world. It doesn't get any more simple, nor does it get any more significant than that. There is nothing more important for you to comprehend in this life than that one single solitary truth. God loves you. God loves you. It actually, he so loves you. That, I've, heard, I've read a lot of commentators said that's the most important word in that statement. For God so loved the world. That's the, that little word so talks about to the degree that he loves you. That's the most important word and probably the most important verse of the Bible. The word so. He so loved you. Max Lucado said this. He said, there are many reasons that God saves you. To bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. But one of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. He could live anywhere in the universe, and he has chosen your heart. Does anybody else have a hard time getting this? Like in reality? God loves you. This comes out of the mouth of Jesus. There's an older uh, gentleman that I've gotten to know at Starbucks over the last couple of years. And uh, we've had lots of talks um, about Jesus and different uh, religions. His beliefs are kind of all over the place. Um, I, I, I think I've shared the gospel with him about a half a dozen times in about a half a dozen different ways. Um, but nothing seems to resonate with the guy. But we've had lots of great conversations. He's a good friend. Um, about a month ago, he called me over to his table and he... Uh, and I could tell there was something on his mind. He just seemed a little distraught that day. And he called me over and he said, Philip, I said, why Jesus? Why Jesus? That's the dream question, right? Uh, you just dream about somebody being that, that forward about why Jesus? So I, I tried to contain my excitement. And I sat down and uh, we talked and I shared a couple more verses. And I shared a little bit of my story again and my experience with, with Christ. But to be honest with you, I honestly felt a little bit... Um, I felt a little uh, at, at a loss because I had shared Christ with him so many times and nothing seemed to resonate. And so what I thought about that time was I'm just going to point him to the scriptures. And so I said, you know, I said, if you really want to know who Jesus is and what he came to do, um, there was a book that was written specifically for that purpose called, uh, by this guy named John, one of Jesus' very best friends. Um, why don't you take that, open it up, and why don't you hear what he has to say about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Um, and so that day, as I was leaving Starbucks, he went out to his car, and he had a Bible buried in his trunk, and so he pulled it out. He went back in while I left. The next day, I was back in at Starbucks, and I, I see him sitting down, and he's got a Bible open in his lap, um, and, and he said, Philip, I, I read through John yesterday. I'm reading through it again today, and I said, great, you know, and, and he shared some of the neat stuff that he had learned, and some of the, he talked about some of the things he didn't quite understand, and and I said, you know, I said, if, if you're interested in, in continuing like, you know, some of the studies, I've got a book that I really enjoy that helps walk through the Gospel of Mark, another account of Jesus' life. If I buy that, buy that book, would you read it? And he said, absolutely. I, I love to read it. So I ordered that day, two days later, put it in his hands. Um, just a couple days after that, I see him uh, come back into Starbucks. I'm at Starbucks a lot, okay? Um, and I see him sitting there reading it, and I, I walk in, and he sees me, and he said, Philip, and he holds the book up, and there's highlights all in it, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he says, I'm going through it. And I said, great, man, great. And then just, just I think maybe two or three days after that, I, I see him again. And, uh, and, he, and he calls me over to his table, and he said, Philip, 
um, he said, the day that you saw me when you came in in the morning, that, that day that you saw me, uh, I, he said, I started that book about 6 a.m. And I didn't put it down all day. And he said, I wept all day long. All day long in Starbucks. I just cried and cried and cried and cried. He said, you know why? He said, because what I came to realize, I, I, I kid you not, this is the truth. This is, this is what he said. I kid you not as I'm standing there listening to him. This is what he said. He said, what I've come to learn is that it doesn't matter what the world says about me. And it doesn't matter what I've done or even what I say about myself. It only matters what God thinks about me and God loves me. Um, very, very rarely am I, <laughs> yeah. Um, very rarely am I speechless, okay? <laughs> as you guys know. But, I mean, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, yes, yes, David. I almost said his name. Um, yes, that's it. That's it. And you know how he learned that? He studied the Gospel of Mark, which tells the life of Jesus. It tells what Jesus had done. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ lived and died for us. God loves you. And I hope that it resonates with you and it permeates into your very being the same way that it resonated with this man. God loves you. If you can get that reality, you can face anything. This isn't just a message for people who don't know Jesus yet. I, rec- I know most of you in this room and I know that you're walking with Jesus, most of you. This isn't just a message. This isn't just like, you know, 101. If you can get this reality that God loves you, and to the extent that you get this reality, you can face anything. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more, nor is there anything we can do to make him love us less. The more you understand and embrace that reality, the deeper your faith will be, the more joy and peace that you will experience, the greater your desire will be to be obedient to him because you trust him. And the more steadfast and resolved you will be in the face of adversity and trial and hardship. One author put it this way. He said, Jesus essentially said, I'm going to calm all the storms, still all the waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, kill death. How can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm was not calmed, not until it swept him away. And if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never ever say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know that he loves you. You will know he cares. And then you will have the power to handle anything in life with poise. Anne Voskamp said this. This is off of a, a, she's kind of paraphrasing a passage of scripture. She, says, she said, if God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If, if trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed in the brow, and your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things that he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That gift was given not because of anything that you or I have done, right? Not because of a thing. Otherwise, it's a paycheck. He's paying us for our services. No, it's a gift. It's a free, unmerited gift given out of love. I'm going to stop. I have a couple more. I told you some bonus practical takeaways, but I'm going to stop right, right here, okay? Um, and I'm just going to pray for us. Um, and then we're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate what we've just talked about. The great love and the great mercy of God that he demonstrated in the person of Jesus. Listen to me, please. Listen. If you are here today, maybe, you're, maybe, maybe the church thing is a little new to you. I know we talk about condemnation. We talk about sin. We talk about hell. We talk about God's wrath. We don't, I don't enjoy talking about those things. I don't. We, we, I, would love to do a, I would love to do a series on marriage, right? I would love to do a series on parenting or something. But what, we, what we've done is we've committed to going through the gospel of John verse by verse. And this is what, this is what John said. This is what John said Jesus said. Therefore, this is what we talk about. And listen, Jesus came in truth and grace. Therefore, that's what we need to, to communicate today. Is we need to communicate truth even when it's hard to hear. But what I need you to hear is that condemnation is not the final word. Condemnation would have been the final word had Jesus not come, but Jesus came that we might be saved. So if you don't, if this is new to you and this is hard, I understand. And if you want to talk further about this, I, I hope that you will take the time and you'll, you'll engage in a dialogue and you'll begin talking through this. And, and then that way, if you reject it, you can reject it reasonably, intelligently. Okay? Um, or, or perhaps today, maybe, even if you, you might be here and you might be one of our community group leaders. And you, if you're really honest, you, you, you may say, you know what? I've never actually truly received Jesus for who he is and what he has done. I'm still trying as hard as I can to work my way to God. And finally, maybe today it's, it's clicking that there is nothing that we can do. We are separated from God. And the only way is that Jesus reached out and he pulled us back through his efforts and not our own. Um, perhaps today is the day when you believe. And it says, for God to love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him. Whoever would believe, that means placing your faith. That means receiving him for who he is. That's another word that we use for believe sometimes, is receiving. So if, if you receive Jesus for who he is, he says, I'm come as your savior, receive him as your savior. He says, I've come as your king, you receive him as your king. I come as your Lord, you receive him as your Lord. You receive Jesus for who he is, the totality of who he is. You receive him as such. You, you accept his forgiveness, and then you, you say, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. I give you my life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray, God, that you would be speaking to each one of our hearts. I pray that if there's anybody here today who does not know you, I pray, God, that they would, they would once and for all today, they would lay down their weapons and they would say, okay, I get it. I need you. I have sinned and that separates me from a holy and a pure God. I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed and I need to be made right before you. I give up. I surrender. You be my master. I am no longer going to be my master. You be the master. God, I pray that that would be the cry of their hearts. Lord, for, for those of us who are here who are walking with you, God, again, this is just a lifelong where we're just beginning to understand it and just meditate on it and, and swim in this. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know and to understand this great thing that you have done for us um, all that much more that we might, um, again, have, have, a, have a foundation in you that is unshakable, knowing that you love us and that cannot be shaken. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.